Well, have you ever asked yourself this question about why the culture of the Bible, it seems so different from today? Like when you read the Bible, it seems there is miracles happening all the time, and yet it's hard to really see a miracle today. Or God seemed to be speaking to people all the time, and yet it's hard to really hear his voice. Or people seem to want more of God or be interested in spiritual things, and no one seems that interested anymore in God or anything that's spiritual. And you sometimes wonder like, hey, if God is real and he really wants people to get to know him, then why doesn't he reveal himself more? Well, if you've ever asked yourself any of those questions, then welcome to our study of Esther. For the next eight weeks, we're gonna be looking at this great book of the Bible. It's one of only a few that really look are named after women. There's Ruth, who's about an impoverished woman. There's Esther, who is an ordinary woman who becomes queen. And Esther, though, has a huge problem. Uh, the problem is this, that God is never mentioned once. There's no reference at all to his name. Now, maybe for you and I, that seems kind of normal because maybe you go to school and it's very difficult to kind of talk about God or you're in a job or you're told you can't talk about God or in this culture, we seem to have pushed God to the sideways. But what we're gonna see is that even though God seems distant, he's very present. Even though he's not mentioned, his fingerprints are all over the scripture. And that sometimes God reveals himself in the ordinary, in the shadows, even in the midst of the wickedness that's there. Now, wouldn't it be good though, if we could find ways of being able to see God more clearly? Like if God is sometimes in the background, if we just see his fingerprints, how can we see those a little bit better? Well, Esther is gonna tell us chapter by chapter, we're gonna gain a little bit of insight about just how we can see God more. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to the book of Esther. And to be able to do that, I just wanna put a little bit of context so you know where in the Bible and in the history of Israel that Esther fits. So if you think back to the book of Genesis, God creates Adam and Eve, puts them in the garden. He gives them this paradise, Adam and Eve sin, and God gives a promise, a promise of a coming savior, that there will eventually be a savior who will deal with the problem of sin. And then we see about 2000 uh, BC that God calls Abraham to go to the promised land. This is the family from which the savior is gonna come. Then about 1850 BC, uh, about 150 or so years after that, Abraham's grandson uh, ends up in Egypt. His name is Joseph. Uh, his family ends up there because Joseph helped save the world uh, that was gonna be experiencing a famine. He provides food for them. And then for 14 or for 400 years, Abraham's descendants, his family, they stay in Egypt. They become multiple millions of people. They become a threat to the Egyptians. The Egyptians enslave them and they cry out to God asking for a savior and that, that God would somehow rescue them. So God raises up uh, Moses around uh, 1450 BC, and Moses leads the people of Israel into their promised land, into the land that was called Canaan then. We know that area as Israel now. They stayed there, um, and for 400 years, they weren't led by a king. They would have judges. They would uh, have people who would come and kind of help lead them. But about 1000 BC, they call for a king. 
And so God raises up David to be, uh, or God raises up Saul as the first king. And then David, about a thousand BC, is the second king. And that's kind of the high point really for the history of Israel. David is followed by Solomon. After Solomon, Solomon's kids can't get it together. Uh, they divide up the kingdom. There's the north and the south. The north kingdom was farther from God. The southern kingdom, a little closer to God. Eventually though, they were so far gone, they had just drifted from God that God says, I wanna refine you. I'm gonna send a nation to come and, and make life difficult for you so that you will turn back to me. And at about 589 or so uh, BC, that God uh, sends some of the people of Israel into Babylon and that they go back there and they become political prisoners. Um, Daniel is one of those. Then in about 538, uh, 536 or so, that uh, Darius the Mede, Darius uh, the Great, the Persian leader, conquers Babylon and they become now a great mighty empire under the Persians. And this is about now 483 that we pick up the story in Esther. It's now after Darius has made Persia into a mighty nation. This is where the scene opens. And as we open up the first chapter of Esther, we see that there's a culture out of control. There is a king who is excessive about control. And then we see in the end though, there's a God our God who is totally in control. So Esther chapter one, we see this society that's kind of out of control. It says in verse one, now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media. Uh, and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. And while he showed the riches of his glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, for 180 days. And so here Esther opens uh, with the story about Ahasuerus, the king. What we notice here is how different it is from all the other books of the Bible. There's no mention of God. There's no mention of God's people. There's no mention of uh, Jerusalem or the temple or the city of worship or God doing something. It's like God is completely gone and void. And so what we see here is this culture that's out of control. We see the secularism that there's nothing about God. There's not even a mention about uh, other worship or other deities or anything that's spiritual. It, it seems completely devoid of that. And here we meet Ahasuerus. And uh, Ahasuerus, uh, we're told, is one of the greatest leaders of the time. He ruled from like Ethiopia to, to India, actually to, to Pakistan is what the Greek would say. And that he is control over their 127 provinces. I mean, he is control of most of the known world. It's the largest empire that had ever existed on the face of the earth up until that time. Now, Ahasuerus, uh, we probably know him more as Xerxes. And actually, in our wonderful graphic here, you can see a close-up, uh, uh, this name, this reference uh, to Xerxes. What I love about this graphic is you look at it from a distance and, and it just seems like nice drawing, but it's all made up of different symbols. And that's just what our story is like. When we look kind of at life, we see everything, but when we get a closer look, God reveals his fingerprints, where he's working. And we meet here as Hasuerus or Xerxes, 
Ahasuerus uh, could have been the Jewish name uh, that some would, some suggest. Ahasuerus could also be kind of like <laughs> the name like king or pharaoh or ruler. It's kind of a description. Uh, but history, and we often know him, and some of your translations would say Xerxes. And, and Xerxes just literally means uh, like ruler of the noble, ruler of the great, that he is of all the greatest people, the ruler. And history tells us uh, that he was, that he had an army of about two million people. He had uh, about two to 3,000 uh, naval ships that were at his capacity, uh, that he was uh, known for kind of all his riches and everything. And life revolved around Xerxes. In fact, God's not mentioned once in the book of Esther, but Xerxes is mentioned 190 times. And uh, in just about 157 verses, more than once a verse, Xerxes shows up, which means that Xerxes is the guy, he's the king. Everything is about him in this chapter. In fact, where it says here that he invites people to come, uh, that that they come and they, they sit or they are before him. And that kind of phrase before him uh, doesn't mean that they're just learning. It means they're kind of bowing and obeisance, that they know that they need to be here and everything in their life revolves around Xerxes. And so he has this six month celebration, uh, this gathering of all the leaders. And part of it is just to show the extravagance of his wealth. I mean, he's the rich guy. If you can afford to host and feed people for six months from all over your nation. Now, what many people think is that this six-month gathering, it was a celebration. He was to show them. He wanted to gather them in Susa to show all his wealth. But that it was also maybe a little bit of a military planning session uh, that we know that one of the things that Xerxes wanted to do is to get revenge for his father. As uh, his father, Darius, had expanded this kingdom, Darius had a little bit of trouble with Egypt. And uh, if you're into your Greek history, you remember that there was the battle uh, of Marathon, you know, where the runner ran like the first marathon to give the news, and uh, that Darius lost that battle. And that he tried, and then Xerxes tried, they wanted to kind of get the get Greece and get Greece underlined. And Greece was kind of uh, one of the sore points in their life. And so they are plotting and planning. And uh, of course, this planning goes bad. A few years after this great banquet, uh, Xerxes experiences tremendous loss. And uh, in fact, he had a little bit of a victory with the Spartans. If you remember like the movie 300, that victory with the Spartans, but then a terrible loss with the Greeks. And then, you know, a hundred years later, Alexander the Great comes and kind of takes over the whole empire. So here they are plotting and planning and everything here is not about God. It's not about spiritual life. It's a very secular, God's taken out world. And here's Xerxes who probably thinks he's the guy and he controls everything. But what we're gonna see is that while he thinks he's the king and looking over all his subjects, in fact, God is the king and he is one of God's subjects. And in fact, what we read um, in the, the scriptures um, uh, in Daniel, Daniel's kind of said the same thing to one of the um, 
uh, leaders in Babylon in Daniel 2.21, Daniel says, God changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. That God is the one in control. God's the one setting up kings. He seems to be kind of eliminated here. But what we know of the truth is that God has set this up. God has set uh, Xerxes up and God is working and in control. We see this culture try to get rid of God. It's their secularism. We see also that it was a very hedonistic, pleasure-focused culture. It says in verse five, and when those days were completed, the king gave for all the people, present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast, lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with the cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars, <coughs> excuse me, and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement, a paffrier, marble, mother of the pearl and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion, for the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. And Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Habasuerus. And so here we see after six months of, of Xerxes showing all the leaders everything, maybe of some military planning, he ends the six month section with the party to end all parties. This is like the weekend bender uh, that you can imagine. It goes seven days. And what we see here is just this incredible opulence that all these curtains and tapestries and pillars and golden couches and drinking from golden vessels and any kind of vessel that you can imagine. It says even like uh, that the floors like had jewels in them. And you can imagine just, you know, Xerxes kind of building this place and it's like, oh, put a diamond here, put an opal there, put a ruby there, like wherever the light would kind of reflect. This is the picture of opulence. And what you see here indeed is even Xerxes kind of command, it's his, his law. He says, we want people to drink as much. You don't have to drink much, but you can drink as much. You're in control, right? You are in control of all that you consume, of all the pleasure. You choose how much pleasure. And that really is by definition hedonism, that we can have what we want, do what we want. You're free to do what we want. And we live in this culture right, that takes God out, makes us God, and says, you're free to do what you want. You just live your life. You be happy, right? Just whatever works for you, you just do it. And so we see here, uh, by the end of this kind of section, this king, right, it's all about him, it's his name there, uh, and it's about his world. He rules, we're told that the palace he built was on a, a man-made hill about 120 feet uh, above everything else, that here is Darius, he's looking down upon all the people, telling them everything, he's guiding them, he's showing them all his glory and power, and majesty, and, and even saying to him, like to people, you can have all the pleasure you want. And what basically it's still saying is the king is in control of everything, including your pleasure and your happiness. That this is a picture of a king, of someone who sees himself godlike. And so this is the second problem. We have a culture out of control, but secondly, we have a king who demands control, who's obsessed 
with control. And we see that this uh, obsessive control kind of begins in kind of some abusive behavior, that he's abusive of others. And verse 10 says, on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, like, okay, he's drunk. This is what it's saying. Seven days, nonstop drinking, he's gone. He commanded Mahuman, Birzta, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abgatha, Zithar, and Corcus, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs, and at this the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. Now, what we see throughout life is that people with power, people with authority, don't often use it wisely. And here we see an example. Here is Xerxes. He, they've been like drinking for a week, celebrating. This is a no-holds-barred party, and he's been showing off everything that he has. And probably after people have seen everything, he's feeling like, I gotta need to show them more. So he sends his seven eunuchs, people who are in charge of the harem, at the palace to go and bring his wife, Vashti. Now, Vashti itself can mean beautiful. It means she was beautiful. It could kind of mean first or best. Uh, it's possible that she was kind of the first or no doubt probably had multiple wives. She was the best of all the, the multiple wives, the one that maybe he favored. And, and he says, I want you guys to go get Vashti, who we're told is having her own uh, you know, desperate housewives event of, of Persia of her own. She's having her own party with people. Bring her here so I can show her off. Now, this was not going to be a Jeopardy competition. He wasn't trying to show off her brains or how smart she was or how creative or her talents. This was like a beauty pageant. He wants her to strut up and down the aisle like a runway model so that all the guys in the room can ogle at her and think, hey, what a great guy Xerxes must be because of his wife, right? That he's so insecure that he wants people to say, oh, he must be a great guy because look at his wife. And now Vashti has a challenge. Does she do this or not? And she knows that to disobey King Xerxes, that's a big deal. Like history tells us Xerxes was ruthless, that he had no heart. In fact, uh, there's an account that one time Xerxes, it's not in the Bible, but in history, that Xerxes uh, wanted a bridge built. It was partly to get his army into another area for a battle. He wanted a bridge built. He had the engineers build the bridge over this body of water. And then a big storm came and the storm demolished the bridge. And Xerxes was so mad, he called all of the engineers who built the bridge. And, and he said, it must be your fault. You're no good. So he beheaded them all. And then he went and he told his people to give lashes. He took long ropes and he beat the water to try to get the water to be submissive. He put uh, big balls and chains into the water to try to chain it down. And, and in fact, he even took like big uh, pieces of wood that was fire at the end and he stabbed the water with this fire to try or to get the water under control. I mean, he was enraged. He was a person you did not mess with. He had all the power. And if you were on his bad side, you didn't live. And so here is Vashti. What does she do? And so Vashti decides not to do this. 
Now, we don't know quite the reason why she doesn't do this. Uh, some commentators suggest that the way that the text reads when uh, Xerxes says, I want you to walk down with a crown on your head, that she was to be naked with just a crown on and she wasn't going to expose herself like that. Some thought that it would just be too demeaning for her to be kind of ogled by all these men and she didn't want to do that. Uh, perhaps the best explanation is that she was really trying to guard her dignity and Xerxes' dignity, because let's be honest, when people are drunk, they don't usually make the best decisions. I mean, alcohol and decision-making don't make the best decisions. And she, at the end of the seven days, probably assumed Xerxes was drunk. In that culture, the wives were never to be seen. In fact, they were never to be seen at a party like this, and like they were rarely to be seen. They were just kind of there for the husband themselves. And you know, in some Middle East culture, they're still kind of completely covered. Other men in particular weren't to see women. And so Vashti knew that this was going to be a, a bad situation if she went and exposed herself to other men and they saw her, it would be not only an indignity to her, but an indignity to Xerxes. And Xerxes wouldn't be able to admit that he ordered her. He would, he would say and argue that she was just trying to present herself and promote herself uh, amongst other people and he would have her killed. And, and Xerxes would kind of be lessened as a man because he was not going against the cultural norms. So she decides not to do this. And notice she's got seven of the harem guys who are there telling her what to do. And they've got to go back to Xerxes and say, she's not doing it. And when they get back, and my, under, my guess would be too, they knew it probably wasn't the best for Xerxes or for uh, Vashti to be able to do this. When they get back and tell the king, it's all out chaos, it's panic. I mean, here the king is trying to control his wife, trying to order his wife around, and she won't do that. And then this creates pandemonium, and everybody else gets kind of worried about what's going to happen in the order of society, and is the whole ordering and controlling of people going to go down the tubes? And uh, we read down in verse 15, it says, Then according to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? Because she has not performed... Uh, the command of King of Azuerus delivered by the eunuchs. Then Mamukin said in the presence of the king and officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in the provinces of King of Azuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King of Azuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media, who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. And so here's what happens, a household argument, right? An argument between a husband and wife becomes a national situation. Like this is why we pray for our leaders, right? To pray that their household arguments, the issues in their home don't become national issues because all of a sudden, Everybody's there. Now everybody gets offended. It's not just the king who says, oh, Queen Vashti dissed me. It's like all the other leaders. Hey, you promised Queen Vashti was supposed to come and do something for us. And now she won't do that. And then it becomes a national crisis. And it's like, well, this is gonna ruin homes everywhere. And all men in particular are gonna lose authority and control. This 
just going to be a mess. And then we see later on, it, it becomes racial challenges. And, and what we see in this culture is just these power struggles between men and women, between families, between people, between the king and rulers, power struggles that are going to come between uh, one kind of uh, ethnic group and another ethnic group. And it's very much like our culture, right? We have still have these isms that are there and still have the ways that we look at people and don't understand people and don't understand groups and we're afraid of another group and afraid of power and we've taken power or don't give power back. We live in that kind of world. And so here is this king, he's got this power control issue that kind of seeps down into the culture. And so he has to decide what he's gonna do. And this brings up like the fourth kind of dysfunction in this whole culture is that there's this judicial dysfunction. You have a society out of control with its secularism and hedonism. You've got this king out of control really uh, binged on power with these power controls. And then he oversees this really dysfunctional judicial system because now they have to figure out what to do. And in verse um, 19, it says, if it pleased the king, uh, this is Mamukin, this is kind of one of his kind of advisors who were there, let a royal order go out from him, let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed that Vashti is never again to come before King Hoazuerus and let the king give her royal position to another who's better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands high and low alike. And this advice pleased the king and princess, and the king did as Mamukin proposed, and he sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man must be master in his own household and speak according to the language of the people. Now, <clears throat> when powerful people sometimes uh, get frustrated or get blocked, they make terrible decisions. And here's a terrible decision that this drunk king makes that really is kind of like overreach. I mean, now trying to control everything in the entire empire. So what does he first says, what am I gonna do with Vashti? What's gonna happen? She has, ha, has not kind of done what I have asked. I've gotta kind of defend my manhood, so to speak. What am I gonna do? And so they say, she's gonna be banished. She can't see the king anymore. And uh, we're not sure, it's a, it's a little unclear whether she was executed or whether she was just banished. Uh, there's uh, commentaries that kind of state uh, both and we're not really sure what happened, but she was never allowed back into the palace. And it says, well, let's pick another one, like a, another, maybe another favorite, another queen that's kind of the, the queen of all queens. But then there's this order that goes out to all of the nations. And uh, everyone that's there has to obey this. And it's all this family order about wives now have to obey their husbands. And then this unusual thing where it says they must speak the husband's language. And what we tend to understand is that when there was kind of intermarriage or different cultures were getting together, that they would often, the children would be raised in the tongue or the language of the mom. And because she's raising probably with them when they're young, that they would be raised in the language of the mom. Now the king is saying, nope, we're not gonna do that. We're gonna make it even more difficult. And that everybody has to be raised in the language of their father, that the father kind of everything goes through. And, and what you see here is just this government overreach, this judicial challenge. And, and what we learn 
learn in the, the law of the Persians, the law of the Medes and the Persians, is that once a law was given, it was given. It can never be taken back. It can never be ended. It can never be changed. Like Xerxes gets up from his drunken stupor and, and realizes what has happened. He cannot change any of these laws. And so this is gonna play a role later on in the story of Esther, but we see this like incredible government overreach. We see all of these challenges, all these laws that kind of force people to do things that maybe aren't natural. And we see this very unusual society. And we see, first of all, a king who really is out of control. And there's a comparison here. I think the author wants us to compare Xerxes with God. That here is Xerxes, you know, seated 120 feet high, showing off his kingdom. We have God who sits in the heavenlies and reveals his glory and shares that glory with us. That we have, a, Xerxes was a king who sent other people to go get his bride. Jesus comes himself to get his bride. Xerxes punishes Vashti for disobeying and not obeying him that Jesus paid the price. He doesn't make us pay the price, Jesus paid the price. Xerxes had a banquet for all the rich and the elite and the who's who, that we see that there is a day when there is a heavenly banquet, a wedding feast, and all who know him, all who say, I wanna come, they just come. And what Esther does is it sets up for us that what's like in a very secular culture, what God-like people become versus who God really is. Secondly, what we see here is that this was the culture that the people of Israel were living in. That at this moment, as Esther opens, there are about a million Jewish people who were living in kind of this Persian empire in exile, and many of them living not too far from Susa. Yes, some of them had returned to Jerusalem, but many of them were living in this very secular, hedonistic, God-forgotten, manipulative, maniacal kind of king culture. And so Esther helps us understand, how do we live? And I'm sure as we were going through, you may be saying, hey, that culture represents our culture. And there are certainly similarities, right? And I don't, I don't think our culture, I just don't think it's as bad as what they had to deal with. But our culture feels like that sometimes. Where's God? It's all about pleasure, government overreach. There's all these isms. People just can't get along or get together or trying to order everybody and push everybody around. And here God's gonna teach us through Esther just how we are to live, how we are to understand him. How do we see God at work? And we can get angry and upset and mad or we can surrender to the God of control. And this is what we see. Thirdly, we have a culture out of control, a king obsessed with control, but a God who is in control. And when you read chapter one, on the surface, it seems like grand drama. Like this is like a big story, party, feasting, a little drama and intrigue. We get behind the scene looks at the marriage uh, of the king, of how it's gonna have national significance. It looks like a grand drama, but really it's a farce. It's a farce of a king who thinks he's in control and has very little control. I mean, what does he do? He's partying all the time. I mean, here's the world's greatest leader. What's he do? He's sitting around six months doing nothing, kind of partying. He's a drunk king. 
that he can't even kind of control his own household, that he thinks he's in control. His wife says, no, you're not in control of me. You can't control me. That he has all of these people around him who tell him what to do. He can't even make a decision. He's got Mamukin and all these other advisors who are telling him what decisions that he is to make. And that he, even though it looks like he's on the throne looking over, he's not in control at all. It's, it's the myth. He thinks he's in control. He feigns being in control, but he's not. And what we're going to see throughout the book of Esther is that in our life, we may think we're in control or I'm in charge, or you may be worried someone else thinks they're in charge. And what am I going to do? They're not. God is in charge. And that throughout the book of Esther, we're going to see the fingerprints of God. We're going to see the providence of God. That's kind of the theological term or understanding, the providence of God. The word providence comes from two Latin terms, which means future and provision. And providence means God's looking over the world and seeing things, and He's going to provide. It's going to be the future provision, that He sees what's needed, and He makes sure that it is organized and comes together. And the amazing thing about providence is that God does this without coercing or forcing people, that God's will is kind of done and accomplished, and yet he uses the personalities and life of the people. And and what we'll see, God did not cause Xerxes to be on the throne or not on the throne. God did not cause Xerxes to have a party or not have a party. He did not cause Xerxes uh, or, or prevent Xerxes even from getting drunk. He didn't cause Xerxes from making demand of his wife or prevent him from doing that. He didn't cause uh, Vashti or prevent Vashti from making her decision. He didn't cause or prevent all the laws that were there. Uh, And yet he's working all of these things for the benefit of God's people. And that he's putting people in place, moving them around, so to speak, like chess pieces, not violating their free will, but superintending over it so that he can work and he can help rescue and save his people and allow Esther to be in a place that's of importance. And this is what we see, that God uses us, but he uses people and situations, he places us, but it's all within his great will, his providence, his sovereignty, his control over things. And what we are reminded of then is that we, are not citizens of this world, we are citizens of heaven. The scripture reminds us uh, of that. Philippians 3.20, it says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. This world is not our home. And sometimes we think, because this is our home, the world should act as God wants. The world is ruled, it says, by by the prince of the power of the air, the Lord of the earth, that, that We have an an evil and a corrupted world. This is not our home. We're citizens of heaven. We're walking through. Our job is to help people see that heavenly citizenship is, is so much better. Help to see what a life with God is like, what it is to live with God, that it's so much better than what's there, that we have a better king than the kings of the world. And, and so this is what we learned from Esther, that the As culture moves farther and farther from God, our own trust in God has to increase. Okay, as culture moves farther away, our own trust in God has to increase. And we have to trust that God's at work. We have to see that he's there. And my guess is like many of us, like we look at our world and we think, 
what's happened. Sometimes we get mad, we get enraged. Uh, many times we, we say, can we go back to the good old days? And I'm thinking, when was the good old days? For, for the people, the, the good old days at, of Esther, the, the good old days in Babylon weren't that great. The, the good old days before that in, in Israel when they were living corrupt lives far from God, it wasn't that great. We look back at our life, when are the good old days? I don't know if I want to go back to the 1920s and, or I going to go to the 30s in the Great Depression or the 1940s uh, and a world war. Maybe the 50s seems a little Aussie and Harriet. That might not be too bad. You get to the 70s and the drug culture begins and, and the sexual revolution, everything begins to change. What are the good old days? You see, we often look back in the past and, and, and long for that instead of saying, hey, let's walk with God to the future. Let's show and point people that being a citizen of heaven is the best way. And so here what we're going to see is in chapter one, it just sets the story of this corrupt king. But we're going to see that God's working in the background. So how do we see God more? How do we see this providence of God? And I would say what we learn from Esther chapter one is the more we try to control and the more we control things and people and places and things, we can't see God, right? And we're often, let's just be honest, most of us are control freaks. We wanna control everything around us and our life. And that the way that we see God is that we have to surrender control and say, hey God, it's not about me trying to control life and trying to control you, but I wanna surrender to you and your sovereignty and your providence. Lord, help me to see where you are working. Help me to lay down my life before you and help me to be able to do that. Oh, through the course of this series, we're gonna have a little extra podcast and I wanna introduce you to uh, Minsu, who is gonna be leading that podcast with us. Well, this is Minsu Kang. I want to introduce you to Minsu. He's a ministry partner here at Bayview, been a part of us for uh, over a year. He's been uh, involved in ministry before, loves to build community, and has a great podcast voice. So Minsu is going to be leading a new podcast for us, Weekend Wednesdays, and going through the book of Esther. And Minsu, as we've been talking about the providence of God and the fingerprints of God, how have you seen the fingerprints of God in your life? Yeah, so um, in 2016, I was given the opportunity to move to Vancouver, uh, work with a Christian organization out there. And um, yeah, I really looked at this opportunity with a lot of excitement and joy and anticipation, but uh, it really did become like one of the hardest seasons of my life. And so a lot of, while I was going through it, I just had a lot of questions of like, where is God? Is God even present here? Um, so it wasn't until I came back and moved back to Toronto where I started to really pray through that season and process that season and really saw the fingerprints of God all over uh, my time in Vancouver. And um, yeah, I can honestly say that that's where the sovereignty of God really came alive for me. Um, I'm gonna dive a lot deeper when we go into the podcast, but you gotta stay tuned. You gotta like and subscribe in order so to hear more. you're not gonna tell us now? No, I'm not gonna tell you now, yeah. Okay, so the podcast's gonna come out Wednesdays. It's a little deeper dive in, in application of our study through Esther, what's your hope for the podcast as people listen? Yeah, I like I don't know about I don't know about you, but a, a lot of times when I'm at church uh, and I'm like really connecting with God in worship or through the message and really really engaging with God, I want that connection to go like throughout my week from Sunday to Sunday. Uh, but I find that you know whether it's distractions, uh, whether it's like school or 
cleaning my house or family <laughs> or friends, whatever it is, I seem to like, I don't know, that connection feel, feels like it's dwindling. And so my hope was to just create an, an avenue for all of us to re-engage with God, reconnect with God. And so this podcast is just one way that you could uh, bring worship, that weekend worship, back into your week. Well, we're excited. I'm excited to hear it uh, and see it launched. Uh, we love, too, to hear your stories about seeing the fingerprints of God, and you can uh, email them uh, to us, send them in uh, to share them, because uh, we want to just take the next couple months and really look at how God's fingerprints are there. Um, let's just close in prayer and just, uh, God, we thank you that you are a sovereign God. And even though we live in a world that doesn't <laughs> always honor you, but honors stuff and pleasure and things, that we can still walk with you and that you are watching over us. So Lord, I pray that during this season, you would really open our eyes to help us see where you're at work, to partner with you in that, and to just rest in confidence and trust in who you are, the great new and better King. In Jesus' name, amen.